Welcome to the Vulnerability Rocks podcast. You're listening to Emma Bell, and I believe that true healing starts with sharing. I'd like to start by introducing you to Kevin and how I know him. So I don't know Kevin as in know Kevin to be my friend, but Kevin I met um, because I saw him at a suicide um, prevention event back in 2012 with grassroots in Brighton. I'm from Brighton. You're from? Originally from Leicestershire, but I came to Brighton when I was 18 and I'm 36 now, so I've been here for half my life. Yeah. Feels like home? Oh yeah, I'm a Brightonian. I couldn't not live by the sea now. No, true. Me the same. So I met Brighton and in my view, it was a privilege to meet you, but I also know that in your view, you didn't really want to meet any of us. No, that's one way to put it. <laughs> yeah, in the nicest possible way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so can you tell me a bit about that evening and what brought you to that evening and how I had the pleasure of meeting you and you... Not... Had the pleasure of meeting you. Well, but, yeah. but not. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was 2012 um, mm. and it was a year where things kind of went, uh, for want of a better term, went mad for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I carried the Olympic torch that year. I ran from Paris to London. The previous year I'd run 52 marathons. And all of these things were uh, encapsulated by mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was 2012, but we kind of have to go all the way back to 2003, 2003 mm-hmm. for where it started. And basically my dad killed himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was during my freshest week at uni. And it had a profound effect on me obviously so you were how old 19 okay yeah just about yeah yeah just uh about to turn 20 um and it was during freshers week at uni so there's like this big social thing meeting people getting to know friendship groups forming mm. cliques you know mm. all of that stuff and basically dad died in freshers week and i had to go home and i was and your dad was uh, in leicester okay yeah um and i uh, went home for two weeks so i missed out on that social formation of uni mm-hmm. um muddled through uni um you know but i always just equated dad being dead with dad being dead not to do with mental health not suicide not stigma okay i never sought counseling never sought refuge anywhere just kind of got on with life and it's fine and you know kind of went through uni and realized I was what I was doing was going through the motions and then in 2007 I had my proper job um I graduated all of that sort of stuff I wasn't over dad's death but I felt like I'd grieved and you know done okay. the process of grieving it's four years on and then I had kind of a a mini very early midlife crisis and um needed to lose some weight um I had to have reconstructive surgery on my shoulder which mm-hmm. meant I had three months without being able to leave my house okay um it was pretty major surgery and because of that I felt like I needed a goal at the end of those three months so what I did was I entered the London Marathon Mm -hmm. and that wasn't anything to do with my dad but it later I realized formed for the entire basis of my use of exercise for positive mental health okay and I loved and hated the the marathon in equal measure but signed up to more and more and more. Mm-hmm. And it, over the years, I started doing ultramarathons and stuff like that. And to cut a long story short, it got to the point where in 2010, um, I was talking to some friends and one of them said, you've done enough marathons, we're not going to give you any more money. Okay. And at this point, I wasn't even raising money for mental health charities because I literally just picked a charity at random every year. I okay. still didn't equate the fact that my dad was dead, <laughs> mental health, me running. And then one of them went, 
you'd have to do something stupid to get more money out of me and one what's so in terms of your friends sponsoring yeah you? yeah because okay. i was always fundraising i always wanted yeah. to extract money from people um, but you were always doing it for random causes yeah like the first time was a breast cancer charity another one was a brighton-based charity called pass it on africa and they built schools in kenya and yeah. it was always through people i knew and other people's causes okay. i always felt like i didn't have a cause of my own which is kind of weird looking back on it now and then one of them said, yeah, you'd have to do something like 52 marathons. You know, I'd give you some money if you did one a week. <laughs> so I just went, all right. And then I did it. And um, I realised early on that I needed something to engage my brain through those 52 weeks. Because the same process, you know, it's like Groundhog Day every week. So I decided that I would um, start raising money for Rethink Mental Illness. Okay. And as well as that, um, and more important than that, I'd actually start blogging about men and mental health. So I started mm. doing some research and just the year before that, I'd sought the help of a counsellor mm -hmm. because I felt like something in my brain hadn't properly switched. And I kept that from everyone. What do you mean by that when you say something in your brain hadn't properly switched? I felt like something was missing. Um, and what was missing was um, grief mm -hmm. and relief. Mm -hmm. um I've, I've said this before quite a lot of times to people but when my dad killed himself it wasn't unexpected he'd attempted seven times in total okay. um so it was inevitable to us to me my brother my sister and my mum um and it was like a terminal illness okay you know like each attempt was just another stage closer mm -hmm. to being dead and it was really sad but what came of it was the initial feeling when my sister called me to tell me he was dead wasn't anger or grief or pain or anything like that. It was this overriding feeling of relief because I felt like I would never feel that pain again mm -hmm. and that my life would now progress because I felt like I was like in some sort of stasis and mm -hmm. and it was awful and I hated myself for it and I couldn't overcome that feeling. Um, what for having the feelings of relief? Yeah, for for feeling like my life could now go on. Okay. Because of that inevitability. So that was the relief, and the other was regret because the night before my dad killed himself, I was out with some new friends, um, doing what freshers do. Had a few drinks. My dad tried to call me, and I didn't pick up. I saw the call, and I actively ignored it. And it took me years and years to come to terms with the fact that I felt like I could have stopped him. Mm. And the truth is, maybe I could, maybe I couldn't, but what's the point in being in this state of mind where you constantly assess what could have happened because now it can't happen. And I think you have to be positive enough in yourself and confident enough to say you did what you could at the time, you did what you felt was right. Talking to my sister about it, she also missed a call from him that night. And mm. we don't know whether he was absolutely beside himself. What I do know is that he'd spent probably six to 12 months in the year before repairing all of the relationships that he had with people because he was mentally ill for a long time. Okay. And he, he he would probably admit that he destroyed a lot of those relationships, including with me, including with my sister. But we all made up. Um, so when he died, we felt he was in one of the best frames of mind that he'd been in for years. Mm. So it's kind of unexpected for that reason, but no other. Um, so anyway, I talk a lot. Um, no, please. We got 2011, I ran all these marathons. People started reading the blogs and that year 
I didn't raise an awful lot of money. I raised £10,000, which is like huge. Yeah. But when you cut it down to cost per marathon, yeah. 200 quid a marathon, like 400 quid a marathon, so it's really not worth it. I spent five grand of my own money that year traveling to runs, you know, mm -hmm. buying trainers, all of that sort of stuff. So it became less about the money and more about the uh, awareness. And people started reading my blog. And, you know, what started at the beginning of the year is like 10 mates, you know, paying faux interest in it. Just I hit some sort of wave which carried me through because I was a bloke. I was quite young. Mm. I was active. I knew someone who had killed themselves and I was talking mm -hmm. and all of those things didn't really happen that much. No. Um, and more and more people started doing it and I, I kind of got braver and braver in how I was talking and the language I was using and I realised that one of the issues people have around suicide and mental health isn't just that they don't talk about it, it's the way they talk about it, the communication, the the taboo subject of it, the fact that nobody really digs deep into stuff. Mm -hmm. And ever since then I've been focused on being an absolute open book about everything to do with mental health. Um, I feel so privileged because I don't feel like I've ever had a mental illness. Mm -hmm. I've definitely had bad mental health and we have to disaggregate those two. Mental health doesn't equal mental illness, just mm -hmm. like physical health doesn't equal physical illness. Mm -hmm. But I've, I've been low, um, but it took me years and years to even come to terms with the fact that I can be low because okay. I kind of feel like this pillar. Um, and talking about it as a bloke, more and more people started getting in touch with me saying, I love this, you know, you're talking openly and honestly and talked about how running became um, solace for me. It, it was like a therapy because at that time I wasn't confident enough to see the therapist for, for long enough to get real benefit from it. But I realised running could be anything I wanted it to be. It could be just for physical exercise. It could be running so hard that I wanted to punish myself, like make myself feel sick, get mm. a burning in my throat, you know. And obviously that becomes a metaphor for the fact that I'm willing to push myself that hard and not give up. Unlike my dad, who did give up. Yeah. Um, and that was a real, like, crutch for me at the time. Then there were the times where I would run and I would literally go out and run and not think about how far I was going, where I was going to. My brain would just switch off and it's... I've never, I've never, I'm boring, I've never taken a single drug, but I can only assume it's what it's like to get a hit sometimes. And I forget almost everything to do with that run. And there have been times when I've gone out and covered 30 miles and just disengaged completely and like hit this blissful um, part of my brain. And then there's other times when I just go and plod along really slowly. Mm -hmm. But either way, it always benefited me. Um, so I was talking about that and I was talking about my perceptions of my dad and how I could have hated him, I could have been regretful, I could have been this and that, but ultimately he's dead, what can I do to, to benefit yeah. it? And in that same year, a few things happened in uh, in the news, which really affected uh, the way that mental health perceived. So Gary Speed died um, mm -hmm. by suicide and he was like famous footballer, rich, beautiful wife, big house, successful Wales manager. And yet he killed himself and I wrote a blog about that and it got published in The Guardian and ended up picking up like 50,000 hits and more people were getting in touch. So and, and then I was asked, like being asked to comment on things in newspapers and mm. I was just a bloke with an experience, yeah. not a professional. And I was like, well, how far do you go with this yeah. stuff until you go, you know what, well, here's my line. Yeah. And that line started coming when people were getting in touch with me saying I'm suicidal, can you help yeah. me? I remember... 
you saying that, you know, and people reach out to me yeah. and telling me that they want to end their own life and I want to help them, but I can't, and it frightens me. Mm. How does that feel, though, when somebody does reach out to you that you don't know, just through this sort of platform that you've built that's brought so much good to so many people? The impact that you had on me personally was incredible, and that was only two years after I had been at my lowest point in my life um, and had seriously been wanting to end my life and had gone and done some reckless things mm. um you personally had an, an amazing effect on me and how open you were and to be able to not look at it in such an insular way because when you are feeling suicidal which i was it's not that you're not thinking about other people it's that your vision is like this yeah it's like you know through a tiny scope and you don't have that ability to do this in that in those moments and that's the frightening part of it um so being part of grassroots and that event and having you speak and listening to you it was a very interesting dynamic for me to hear you talk like yeah. that but then how do you feel when somebody who like me was in that crisis point comes to you in that crisis it's really difficult. I've always been pragmatic enough to want to help people. I would be lying if I said that it came, that my judgment has never changed. Um, I probably started off uh, with a bit of a fraudster complex mm -hmm. because I was someone with an experience, nothing mm -hmm. more. But then I realised that anyone, whether it's academics, counsellors, therapists, etc., etc., they go through a period of teaching, but effectively they wouldn't necessarily know more. And actually what I came to realize after a few years was that the most important thing, regardless of who you talk to, regardless of how hard it is to admit it, is making sure that you yourself are not harmed by the work that you're doing. So there's an analogy I always use when I talk in schools. And it's basically, if you're on an airplane and let's mm -hmm. say the airplane's going down, mm -hmm. if the oxygen mask drops, mm -hmm. then you put yours on first and then you help the people around you. Yeah. With mental health, it's exactly the same. If you're not in the right frame of mind, if you're not resilient enough and strong enough and your mental health isn't good enough, mm -hmm. you cannot help people around you. No. So I've always used that. Um, and there have been times when I've never ignored anyone, but there have been times when I've focused more on other people than than myself and it's it's not been good for me mm. but ultimately all you can do is refer people to the right places right. you know so I've, I've acted as a signpost basically mm -hmm. and there have been times when i've uh you know and we have to remember these are absolute strangers to yeah. me i have had friends get in touch and 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 that's kind of reassuring um and lots of people that i know ask me for advice but when it's pure strangers all you can do is signpost them you can listen and you can be there, but you have to be absolutely explicit and say, there's nothing I can really do apart from listen. I'm yeah. not a therapist. Yeah. I can't do this. I can't do that. Yeah. But here's the people to contact. Yeah. Or, um, and there have been some crises that I've been involved in where I've had to contact the emergency services on behalf of somebody hundreds of miles away. And I never want to be seen as being responsible for anybody's demise, no. you know, and, and you bring that risk with you when you open yourself up to the world so much that if they start relying on you too much and you say something that's misconstrued yeah. or that they don't agree with, yeah. it's a real challenge. Mm -hmm. 
And one of the big things for me is is uh, about language around mental health and suicide. Mm. You know, there are lots of people with lots of opinions and, and my opinion probably doesn't sit with other people's a lot of the time, especially mm -hmm. the official bodies. And my opinion is that so long as there's no malice in the language you use and you're not against other people, say what the hell you want mm -hmm. if you feel empowered to say it. So mm -hmm. my brother and, and I, you know, we have dark sensitive humour mm -hmm. and we when we talk about my dad in passing we'll say when dad topped himself now that's not okay to a lot of people no. but to us it opens up a window because i couldn't imagine talking to my very working class brother and going when dad chose to die by suicide it yeah. doesn't sit right with us yeah so it's about dynamics of languages and, and the intonation and all of mm. that you know and there are times where you have to correct people and challenge people. But then I'm sure you wouldn't walk up to a complete stranger and speak like that. No, absolutely. And, I, and I've challenged people on that. You know, I remember being on a train to London once and uh, just outside Three Bridges, the train stopped and said, we're going to be here for a while. Um, somebody um, has fallen in front of the train, which mm. is an analogy for somebody killing themselves. And this businessman um, rang up his office and he said, I'm going to be late, some selfish bastard has topped himself on the train and I felt empowered enough and this was not long ago three or four years okay. and I felt empowered enough by then knowing what I know to say excuse me that's not okay for you to say that and this is why yeah think of that person's family imagine it was your son yeah. you know maybe they had a crisis and um I don't want to sound like some cheesy idiot but people started clapping after I said that and other people were like, so good that, you know, you felt like you were able to do that yeah. kind of thing. No, it is. And the more that people do it, the more that it will change. Exactly. I mean, things from when I met you in 2012 till now have drastically changed. Mm -hmm. And it's great. Um, I do think there's a lot more that needs to be done for men. Yeah. Um, because I still feel that it's more taboo for guys than girls mm -hmm. um and in a world where women are campaigning for equal rights then this is a bit out of balance yeah. it's almost the other way yeah. around you know like uh it's more acceptable for not it is but i think it's easier to accept that a girl can struggle whereas a guy should man up absolutely you know but yet we're wanting women to be as empowered as men so i mean it has to go both ways yeah. in my view i think it's it's a really interesting concept that men need to be strong mm. and i played rugby growing up you know and we were all about having fights and being blokes and mm. you know and and fitting into those kind of gender um stereotypes it is changing slowly but even those more vocal about other people's health aren't looking after their own yeah. especially amongst men suicide's the biggest killer of men in the uk aged between 40 and 50. nothing kills more men than suicide um it's the only disease that you can guarantee to cure in some yeah. ways yeah. you know it's, it's about education mm -hmm. the problem is that the money that we invest in other in curing other illnesses proportionally is absolutely tiny for mental health mm. and that's treatment for it yeah. we spend no money quite literally no money on prevention no you know so we have recommended daily allowances of different foods don't eat bacon it gives you cancer etc etc mm. but there is nothing within our youth budget you know amongst young people schools societies whatever in like making children uh, aware of what might happen to their mental health mm -hmm. And if if we don't invest in preventing, 
we will constantly be chasing our own tails and trying to mm-hmm. cure later, you know? Of course. I always say to a lot of people that I know at school, they'll teach you how to add up, they'll teach you how to spell, get taught how to do your shoelaces. But who teaches you how to look after your emotional well-being? Yeah. Who teaches you how to interact and communicate? Who teaches you what a healthy relationship is? Mm. Who teaches you what a boundary is? I mean, I've only just been learning this very, very recently healthy boundaries with family with work with friends with everything like you were saying put your own gas mask on first um i've always had a bit of a narrative that you should always put others first but actually that does come at your own detriment it does and especially for parents as well you know when you look at archetypal mums and dads they give up everything for their kids and i've got a six-year-old and i can totally get why and i would lay across dirt for that kid if it meant him not getting his shoes muddy you know um and it's really really difficult to draw that line and i think one of my biggest strengths in the past couple of years is admitting to myself that i enjoy time without him being around because you become consumed by looking after others yeah and forget to look after yourself even in the small things i'm not a mother i have lots of friends who are parents and I'm Auntie Emma to about 100 kids, mm-hmm. which I'm I'm forever grateful for. I love them all, and sometimes I think they're mine. But um, I often see my friends putting themselves at the bottom of the pile. Yeah. In the, and it's in the name of love, and I get it, and it's wonderful. However, what are you teaching your children? You're teaching your children that they come last when they get to yeah, be yeah, your age. Exactly. You know, I watched my mum put everybody else before herself, including me. Um, but actually, when you really think about what that little person's watching and learning, they're learning, oh, well, when I'm old, I go last. Yeah. You know? Um, so it is a balance. And uh, I'm not a parent, so I can't t- speak from experience. But I can see that doing the thing for yourself and showing your children that it's important to do things for yourself as well. Mm. I'm not saying discount them, you know, let them fend for themselves. But it's about balance, food, isn't you know? it? It's like, but, when I was a kid, I always remember thinking that my dad was the strongest man in the world. Mm-hmm. And he was the strongest man in the world to me because he didn't cry. Okay. And, you know, he was, I mean, he was a diminutive statue. He was five foot five, um, you know, like 10 stone wet through. But he was dead strong because... He never cried. Mm. And I realise now that that was a weakness yeah. and not a strength of his, you know. Mm. I will hold my hands up. I'm a massive pussy when it comes to a lot of stuff because I will cry at my kids doing the cutest of things, you know. Mm. I have conversations with him. I'll, I I deliver these talks to school children about, you know, being okay with who you are regardless mm. and looking after each other and stuff like that. And I'll, I'll talk about my dad's suicide, you know, like with a dead straight face and not worry about getting upset. But then when I say, but here's why my life has changed. And I start showing pictures of my kid who's alive and healthy and thriving and amazing. Mm-hmm. That's what will choke me up. Mm-hmm. And I realise now that my dad, it's not that he didn't cry. It's that he didn't often show emotion. Yes. And I can, the first time I remember him crying was at my Nana's funeral when I was like nine or 10. Um, literally had never seen him cry before then. The second time I saw him cry was um, when I was 16. I just picked up my GCSE results. My family haven't got a great academic history and I did really well. 
and he cried when I gave him my results and like seeing a man cry through happiness was like why the hell is this happening and then the third time I ever saw him cry was when um, he'd attempted suicide and he was sobbing you know mm. uncontrollably um, and that was it and I could probably tell you I've cried in the last week maybe twice already <laughs> <you know? laughs> and it's I think I've learned from him you know when I talk to Jesse about him I don't try to sugarcoat what's happened in in his life and my life um I talk openly and Jesse asks questions as a six-year-old and I obviously choose what I say very carefully mm. but what I also say to him and anyone else that will listen is that I've learned the best things from my dad is of, of what he was like as a dad mm. and he did some amazing stuff that you know um, but I've also uh, learned the things that he didn't do well and mm -hmm. I've tried not to do those and mm -hmm. become a better person for it. And I think sometimes we forget when people die that there were negative sides of their life as well as positive. Yeah. You know, we because always shine a light on, yeah. uh, on people who have passed away, but there are things that they weren't good at, you know. And I think that's the same even, even for people who just their parents are still alive. It's very easy to put parents on a complete pedestal and um, I think that's where a lot of our sort of defeating narratives can come from mm. because you put them on a pedestal and you expect a pedestal kind of relationship and, and that all just becomes quite messy sometimes. But I think we can even do that when they're still alive. Yeah. You know? We just think that they are like godly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know especially for myself, you know, with uh, a difficult father relationship, you know, with my natural father and my stepfather, I spent an, a good number of years just, you know, like God. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> but yeah. actually, guess what? They're just human. Yeah, exactly. And and <laughs> with us seeing them as godlike, they then feel like they have to be godlike and not yeah. make mistakes. And if they do make mistakes, cover them up because you can't see them because then, you know, you see yeah. their, their kind of fallibility. Mm. So it just perpetuates and it goes round and round like that until something unravels and something terrible happens or until there's like uh, an intervention that makes them rethink the yeah. way that they are. Yeah. And men don't have those opportunities to rethink like women do, mm. like children do. So, you know, it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. I think things have improved. Like, you know, he's been dead for 16 years or thereabouts bit longer maybe now um and the world is changing mm. people are more open um there are more interventions you know but th these i don't want to get too politicized but these interventions aren't the result of of national uh governmental changes and investments these are the realizations of normal people like you doing these things to open conversations yeah and without those people we'd be screwed. No, you know? I agree. Um, it's lovely to see things like um, in the UK, we have men's sheds, which is literally where a bunch of blokes will turn up and there's a men's shed. Men's sheds? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an amazing <laughs> initiative. So there's like these shed. I mean, I say shed, they're gigantic sheds. Okay. <laughs> blokes turn up and they do blokes things like cut wood and, you know, okay. and chat and box. But with this notion that they're there because of mental health, charities are funding it and therefore it opens a conversation you know because men won't go to um or certain men of certain ages won't go to like Marks and Spencer has this this amazing thing called the Frazzled Cafe okay which is like I don't know which Marks and Sparks do it but basically they do half price tea and coffee and if you turn up between the hours of 10 and 11 basically it's the Frazzled Cafe where people who are 
struggling or just want to chat or whatever, lonely, you know, suffered a death, bereavement, whatever, can just turn up and talk to strangers. Okay. But blokes won't do that. So the men's sheds are like the bloke's ability to do it. Okay. And whilst I don't conform to lots of gender stereotypes, if blokes feel like they need to continue to be blokes and that's an open forum, do it, you know. Yeah. And it's a great space. I'm from a rugby playing background. You know, rugby players are hard. They're stupid, but they're hard. <laughs> um, and they're opening up. Rugby is opening up these conversations like never before, you know. Yeah. Caroline Flack died a couple of weeks ago, and it's, I mean, it's shown everything that's bad about the tabloid newspapers. <laughs> but if we can gleam anything from it, it's that she shouldn't have died. But the positivity that's coming out of it hopefully mm. will have a knock-on effect. Mm. Danny Cipriani, rugby player... Yeah. her ex-boyfriend he did the most amazing video oh i saw it and the part about shame for me yeah was just massive yeah. and that's what we were touching on um a bit earlier is that for me it's the shame that's the monster in the room mm -hmm. um because the shame that we put on ourselves now whether that be because we've done something that we deem really awful and we can't bear the thought of someone knowing what we've done and the shame that it will bring and the shame that we think it will bring on our family and our work and what if everyone knew and you can't bear that um or the shame of financial hardships these are big ones yeah you know um i when i left school i went and did my training to work in a funeral home in a mortuary to look after people so that's what I'm actually trained to do. Mm. And I have looked after a lot of people that have taken their own life. And a lot of them are men. Yeah. And some of them I know were for financial problems and everything was too overwhelming and they just couldn't bear it. And they were left in a space where they were so full of shame they didn't see any other option. Yeah. We have to you know, allow difficult. a release valve for people somewhere yeah. because, you know... Otherwise they find it themselves. Even the best pressure you know? cooker will explode. Yeah. I had a lady get in touch with me maybe like eight or nine years ago now and she'd come across my blogs and, and she said, I'm getting in touch because um, my other half killed himself um, last year and I'm really struggling, but I want to do something positive. What can I do to help? And at the mm -hmm. time I was trying to make a video around suicide. People... Mm -hmm literally saying the word and the idea was to go across social media platforms and ask people to film themselves just saying the word suicide okay. so that it became a normal thing and she worked in tv production she's like i could put that together for you and i was like brilliant maybe we could film something together she said oh, i can't i can't be seen on there and i said oh it's, it's a real shame i won't push you but you know it's a real shame she said i'd love to but nobody knows he killed himself because his parents told everyone he died in a car crash and I was just like, I was blown away because she now has to live with his suicide, dealing with her own mental health and not being able to talk about it to a lot of people because his family took the step of, of yeah. telling everyone. Well, and then that she's never going to be able to show up authentically in a conversation no. about that yeah. grief and loss. And what does that say about both his shame and theirs Huge. to not be able to admit it? And it, it kind of, you know, and that was literally the reason I was making that video yeah. was so that people like that didn't do what they did. Yeah. Um, you know, and she said, I can't challenge them on it, you know, but I don't know what to do otherwise. Oh. And what do you do? Because then you're in this position where you don't want to upset or offend anyone and, and the family would have been grieving. And yeah. 
you know but then so was she and and yeah. in the end she moved to the states and started a new life because oh, she couldn't hack you know that that would be very i mean i cannot imagine being in that position but it's incredibly difficult to deal with because yeah. even just the bumping into someone in the street and that conversation happening yeah. about such a big event that's just happened in your life and you have we don't have to, but you've been that you're in this position where you can't show up and be authentic about it. Yeah. Which in itself must just be debilitating. Yeah, so much of it's personality based and I used to have different thoughts to what I have now about people who avoid the conversation. I remember mm. in the week after my dad died I went back home and I was walking down the street and one of my rugby team was walking in the opposite direction and he saw me and he'd obviously heard what had happened and he ducked into a shop. Mm. And he avoided me and that really hurt that yeah. really really hurt um and i thought i hate him and now of course i don't hate him and we haven't spoken since but it's not because of that life mm -hmm. goes on but then the day after that i was in the pub with a, another mate of mine who just an amazing guy and then someone else came up who i used to play rugby with and he went all right kev and hi nick how you doing and he went, i heard about your dad mate i'm so sorry he's dead and i was like thanks mate that means a lot and he said I nearly died once, you know, and then just started talking to me. And, <laughs> and it just, it lightened the entire conversation because to him, he hadn't thought beyond death. Yeah. It was just death and that was sad. It wasn't, yeah. can't talk about suicide, I can't. And he just went into our rhetoric about how he nearly died. And <laughs> But it lightened the entire mood to the point where I was like, that's the outlook we need. Yeah. Just that somebody's dead and that's sad doesn't yeah. matter why they're dead, how they're dead. It's just the shame that they're dead. Yeah. You know, the outcome is the same regardless. And that made me realise that, you know, Nick, lovely guy, rugby player, stupid. And because of that, didn't think beyond it. He didn't mm. overthink. Mm. And I think a lot of the time people who choose not to engage in the conversation, choose not to do it, not because they don't care, but because they're scared yes. of what the outcomes might be. Yeah. Whether it might trigger yourself, because we know that people who have been affected by suicide are more likely to start by suicide. Mm. Whether you, you're ashamed of it. And they don't want to bring it up because if you are, then you might get embarrassed, run off mm. or whatever. Um, or just because they don't know what to say. Mm. I've had people um, who have said to me when I've... I have bipolar, so I have ups and downs to manage for the rest of my life. So, <laughs> um, And sometimes the lows are challenging. And I've had people who I know love me, who I know care about me, sort of shuffle up to me sort of awkwardly and and say I, I don't really know what to say to you and yeah. I'll be honest I I don't know whether to talk to you about it or to not talk to you about it because I'm worried that if I talk to you about it if I if I talk to you and ask you about being suicidal does that make, make you want to do it more or so there is a lot of fear but it comes from love um yeah is what I have found yeah and we need to empower people to um to initiate conversations, to have difficult conversations, because yeah. there's no doubt they're difficult, yeah. but also to challenge behaviour as well. Mm -hmm. Suicidal people, you know, by their nature, they're usually mentally ill. Yeah. Um, they usually aren't thinking straight, mm -hmm. um, you know, not in your right mind right, is, is a term that lots of people use. Yeah. Um, and so many people walk on eggshells around those people mm -hmm. to the point where it's of no benefit to have the conversation and we need to actually go, that's not okay. Yeah. Emma feeling like that is not okay yeah. and doing this is not okay yeah. not the whole Hollywood think of your family and no, you know you've got no. the world to live for just that's not alright yeah actually there are alternatives and yeah. here they are yeah I talked on a panel um, a while back 
and it was me, the, the victim of suicide, uh, an academic who did research into suicidal thoughts um, and another academic who runs a suicide bereavement centre mm. and a lady in the audience, you know, it opened the floor to questions and this lady said, I want to die. She said, I just can't get through my life. I, I can't be here anymore. I answered first and I said, I'm so sorry to hear that. There are ways, there are means, people you can speak to. And uh, and then the one of the academics said, uh, don't do it. You can't do it. It's not okay. You absolutely cannot die. Talk to us afterwards. We will help you. And the other academic said, and I don't see any of these people being right or wrong, but the mm. other academic said, I don't know you. I don't know your life. I can encourage you not to die, but ultimately if you choose to do it, it's your decision what we're going to be and each of our points had valid responses you know yeah. um i don't know whether i could have stopped my dad dying i don't know whether him being alive would have been for the greater good if i'm honest because mm. it's really sad that he's not here but i've made a hell of a life mm. out of him dying in a way which is sometimes you know forgotten um i've gained an awful lot in my life because i've used his death to positively influence myself and others mm -hmm. and I'd be beautifully naive if he was still around because I wouldn't know about this stuff I wouldn't be talking to you mm -hmm. I wouldn't have carried the Olympic torch I wouldn't have become a personal trainer I wouldn't have met the people that I've met mm -hmm. so you've got to weigh everything up and just think you know we have to make the best of what we of have got or of, of course what we haven't got anymore mm. and add some value to it and mm -hmm. it's what people have done around the death of Caroline Flack it's what I did around the death of my dad but ultimately, we don't want any of it to happen. And we just want it to be intrinsic within society for people just to be nice. Yeah. You know, it's that simple. Yeah. Ask someone how they're doing. Northern people are so much better than Southern people at that. You're on a bus. Tell me about that. And they'll go... What do you mean? They'll be like, <laughs> you're all right. And if Southern people go up north and a Northerner asks them if they're all right, they're like, well... <laughs> in London, you can't even catch someone's eye. But, you know... And I think we, we've got a responsibility in society just to look out for everyone. Yeah. Stop buying all the toilet paper, you know, no, stop buying all the good. hand sanitizer. Honestly, I landed yesterday, I texted you, I landed yesterday and we were driving down and I saw a guy on a, on a bicycle and on each of his handlebars he had three maxi packs on each and he was like this. Yeah. <laughs> That's what is going on here? It's, it's nuts, you know, and it's yeah. this... And I don't know whether it's just British, but this notion that charity starts at home means that regardless of what else is happening around you, you make sure that you have everything that you need and more than enough. Mm. Which means that because of this COVID-19 like disaster that's coming and will mm. come, everyone's bought everything of importance. There's no paracetamol. Um, <laughs> there's no toilet paper. It doesn't even give you the shits. That's the thing about this disease. Um, and there's no um, hand sanitizer. In Dubai, we've got uh, hoses. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. It's a different world, isn't it? You know. I mean, we have the option of both. I'm yeah. sure that Westerners, you know, we use toilet paper, but uh, but the B day is, is is not a British thing because we're so conservative about it. But it, it just goes back to the whole idea that you you don't look out for those around you and actually you just panic and make sure that mm. just you know your immediate vicinity is okay it's those questions isn't it you know how are you yeah i'm all right yeah. it's just so yeah. sort of yeah. on the surface um and i in my professional work have worked in operations for the last over a decade and i do 
think it's important to actually ask the question, how are you feeling today? Yeah. It's a really good question to ask some people, you know, yeah. rather than just, how are you all right? Yeah, you know, just this kind of like, yeah, yeah. on the surface Everything's chat. superficial. Yeah, there was a, I forget who ran it, but there was a campaign a couple of years ago called Ask It Twice. Mm -hmm. And I said, how are you doing, Emma? You'd be like, yeah, I'm all right. Yeah, but how, how are, are you? you? Yeah, yeah, how are you? How are you Because really that, it opens up a door for people to go, mm. actually, it's not great, yeah. you know? Um, we've got to be willing to ask difficult questions and expect difficult answers. Yeah. And we're superficial humans, so... Sometimes all you want is the person to go, yeah, I'm all right. And you're like, brilliant. Bye. <laughs> and actually what you need to do is go, you've been a bit different. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're not usually late for work and you've been in late. Are you okay? I'm not worried about you being late, but it's out of the ordinary, yeah. you know, let's yeah. go and have a coffee. Yeah. Let's go and have a walk. Um, and that's really powerful Yeah. because it shows people not only that you care, but you've got the time to care more yeah. if they need you to. Mm. Because we won't ask for help, and it goes back to that conversation we had about shame and strength. Um, the vast majority of people are too strong, um, in my opinion, not strong enough to go, I'm, I'm drowning, mm -hmm. give me some help. Um, I think sometimes people don't know how to identify their emotions either. Yeah. Um, we're not taught that sort of going back to what we were just saying, we're not taught how to work or identify or even identify our emotions properly mm. as kids. We get taught by our parents and who were our parents taught by their parents. So yeah. let's think about it. We're now being taught by what three generate two, three generations before yeah. us. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty outdated. Um, we probably need to get a bit more current than that. <laughs> so, you know, it, our, our parents weren't sent to school mm. on emotional awareness and how to teach all of these things. So it's something that what I see is we tend to be learning as we're adults, by which point a lot of the damage has already yeah, been yeah, done. And absolutely. then we're undoing everything and trying to put everything back together yeah. and wondering why we're not coping as adults when we should be coping as adults. Because guess what? We're grown up now. Yeah. And we don't really know what we're doing still. So yeah. <laughs> and we, we can only influence future generations, though. Mm by ensuring that older generations get that, mm. you know. Um, I work in higher education, and I get a lot of questions from, you know, builder dads being like, why does my son need to go to uni? I'm a builder, I've done all right. And you explain that it's not about the money, you know. Mm. They might earn more, they might earn less, but they'll see the world, they'll meet different people, you know, they get this, they get that. And they go, oh, all right, well, I'd quite like to have been there or done that. Mm. And it, it's influencing adults to influence children, you know. I talk to Jesse about it all the time because I know an awful lot about it and therefore he'll be all right. I kind of hope that he passes on that wisdom to mm -hmm. children around him whose parents don't see their vulnerabilities okay. Mm. Um, and, you know, working with different groups of people on their their approach to this stuff, mm -hmm. you know, it really, it doesn't even, like, it's not being in another country that affects it, it's being in another social class that affects it. The working classes don't engage with mental health like the middle classes do, for instance. Mm -hmm. And the upper classes don't either because they're too posh to have problems, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So we sometimes feel that mental health is only acceptable in certain areas. And that could be certain genders, certain age groups, certain disabilities, mm -hmm. certain social classes. But it just encompasses everyone. Mental illness can come to anybody. Of course. 
and the strong the strongest of people and I think that's when it's really hard because someone who deems themselves as strong the pillar of the family or to then be in a place of crisis and not be able to speak yeah must just be horrendous because then you've got no way of speaking exactly i liken it to picking up um a virus mm. you know if we if we link physical and mental health no matter how fit and healthy you are you might pick up a virus yeah. and you become physically ill yeah. men's health the same you might get through 99 percent of your year mentally perfect you know yeah. in dreamland but there could be that one thing that you interact with you know that one sneeze that affects your mental health. There could be that one accident mm -hmm. that would break your ankle physically, but has caused a crisis mentally, mm -hmm. you know? And as soon as people start realizing that having a mental illness doesn't mean that it's chronic, mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it will never go away. No. You know, bipolar is manageable over time. Mm -hmm. Some people argue you can cure it, other people say you can't, but it's mm -hmm. always manageable. Mm -hmm. But other mental health crises can disappear completely and yeah. you can go back to full health. It can be seasonal. Health. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah, yeah. You can have a bad season and that's okay. Yeah. But the important thing is to not let that bad season turn into an all-out crisis that is unresolvable. Exactly. Um, and the reason that I'm doing these things and talking to you today is because I feel really passionate about talking because I know that it is the only way to make this better and yes there's medical intervention and there's support and there's therapy but if we don't do the first bit which is speak the rest can't happen yeah yeah we've got to have the conversations haven't we yeah. and things like this you know they could you know say i don't know a couple hundred people watch this one person might utterly engage with it mm. and um and they spread it and they spread it and they spread it you know it's like a pandemic yeah. and it ends up going you know around the world and before you know it you know you could have influenced hundreds of people you could have influenced just one mm. but the effort of us chatting for an hour mm. could completely change somebody else's outlook and it gives it's that thing that you said where you were in um the underground on the train mm. and you had the confidence to speak yeah it's about people saying well if they can do it i can do it too yeah. if they can stand there and stand in what they believe to be their truth rather than just being silenced because of a social pressure and actually well actually no I'm I don't feel okay today and I feel okay to say that yeah or ask somebody I have a friend who recently is going and currently is going through a crisis right now and um you know the friends around we're, we're trying to work out how best to support that person and I I'm abroad. I'm in a different country. So yeah. you feel very uh, helpless and powerless when you're so far away because we, we're humans and we like to be able to get our hands on something and yeah. fix it, right? <laughs> Especially if you are, it's in your nature to be a bit of a fixer. Um, and in the end, I just had, I just said to her, do you know, I am really worried. Are you feeling suicidal right now are you considering suicide right now has this been something that's on your mind let's talk about it and you do have to take some time you know a breath before you yeah. say something like that yeah. Like, oh god yeah but in it it's a conversation that matters and it's not easy but it's really important because then that gives the person to come the opportunity to check themselves yeah and say oh even if it is that what's 
does that resonate with me? No, no, that's not where I'm at. I'm just yeah. here. Yeah. And then you can gauge how you can support that person or it gives them the opportunity to say without the shame, yeah, I have. Yeah. We've got to empower people who feel suicidal to make mm. the change themselves. Um, yeah. And it's okay to say to them, I can't do this for you. Yeah. That old, you know, analogy of you can't, you can take a horse to water but can't make it drink. Mm. It's never truer than with a suicidal person because they're not, if they're not in the position to want to change mm -hmm. and to want to improve and make things better mm -hmm. no matter what you say f to them no matter what you do for them mm. it can't happen and, and my brother lived with me for a while and he was having some real issues and it took me a long time to realize that following him around doing everything for him <laughs> being scared to say things that might upset him just perpetuated the notion that he was helpless and that frankly he could take advantage of the fact that i was doing everything for him i was giving him money left right and center i was taking him to places you know as was his personal butler and i spoke to his psychiatrist and the psychiatrist said this is really difficult to do but you've got to let go of some of that control yeah and um and there were times when he would threaten to go and kill himself and i would follow him and say you can't do this can't do this come with me come with me you know and i'll be hysterical and then the the um, psychiatrist said don't do that say to him that's not okay I don't want you to do it but ultimately I can't stop you and let him walk out the door that's scary oh my god because if it goes wrong you've got a dead person and, and the guilt would be huge but it empowered my brother when he saw me not following him to think do I want to do this yeah and he would come back and he'd go I'm sorry I've had time to think yeah. And that slowly got better and we had more of these conversations and, and I'd feel more confident, you know, and, and you realise like a communication technique that suits everyone. Yeah. And it's empowering mm -hmm. to say to people, you're the only person that can do this. We will help you. We'll provide yeah. what you need. But ultimately, this is your life. You live with yourself 24-7. Nobody else does because we can all remove ourselves from you. Yeah. So you've got to be happy to put the effort in and to reap the rewards from it. And it takes a long time and it's a battle. And if they don't want to change, they won't. Mm. But ultimately we can only do what we can do to the point where, you know, you have to hold your hands up and say, this is affecting me too much now. Mm -hmm. And uh, as somebody who has definitely been in a very bad space, I think initially when I had my breakdown, you know, nearly 10 years ago, I could, would have considered myself as a very strong person and all of these things. But when I started to have those feelings, I was terrified because I just didn't know what was happening to me. Mm. And since then, obviously, with the highs and lows, that old familiar feeling comes back to me. And I don't have the same level of fear because I know I've had it in its past. Yeah. But I think it's important for people that, I hate to say new to that experience, but is having those feelings for the first yeah. time, it's important for you to know that there, it can be different and it can pass, but the first step is having the confidence to talk and not to feel like you're failing by talking because I think, for me, I used to feel like I need to fix this on my own because if I can't, I'm failing at everything else. So I at least need to be able to fix myself. Yeah. And then when you realise you can't fix yourself, 
in a capsule because that's you just don't get better that yeah. way then you feel like you're failing at that as well then you feel like you feel like you failed at everything absolutely we have to treat ourselves and our bodies um like vehicles in mm. a way mm. and realize that i'm not a mechanic mm. there's some things i can do i'm a qualified personal trainer so the things i could do to my body that improve my health mm -hmm. but you know i can't deal with my head i can't mm. fix my teeth yeah i can't you know like do this or that and that's okay other people are skilled to do it yeah so actually you go I need to go to this person. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't ask a bricklayer to plaster your wall. No. They might do an all right job of it, but they're not a plasterer. Yeah. And it's the same across all skills. You know, you, you can't be brilliant at everything. No. And it's okay to be like, I'm going to have to go to a professional for mm. this, you know. And it took me, like I said, years and years. And the only time I've had proper counselling where I've been week in, week out for a long period of time was after my marriage broke down. Mm -hmm. I see myself as one of the strongest most resilient people around if i'm in a race with somebody you know i, I live for running um they're not going to beat me mentally mm -hmm. they might be faster runners and that's kind of okay i don't give up i will mm -hmm. run however long however hard i need to but that knocked me for six and it was the first point since dad died where i went i'm too low to deal with this on my own and it was massive because i kind of set myself on this pedestal of being the mental health guy and that made me think I was too strong to need help when actually mm -hmm. it took me a lot of time and a conversation with one of my best mates to go, you know what, I'm going to burden somebody else with this. Yeah. And we sat there and we, we talked about, you know, the breakdown of the marriage and other things that could be making me feel sad. And I realised that it was grief that I was feeling again. Yeah. And part of that grief was my dad because I'm, you know, if I think about it, I get sad. Part of it was the grief of my marriage dying. Yeah. And part of it was grief around my life completely changing. Yeah. And then the therapist who was lovely, and I can't say she was particularly skilled. She didn't come across as like, you know, this incredible epiphany style goddess of a, of a woman. She just sat and listened. Mm. And I paid her good money. And it was a stranger but it was so enlightening mm -hmm. because she'd ask questions and then leave me to talk. Yeah. And that's what I needed and what I wanted. And I didn't feel like I could do that with a friend because they might, um, not they might judge me, but they'd, they'd have a bias in some way, you know. Yeah. My mates stick up for me, so they'd be like, oh, no, no, it's definitely not your fault. And actually, I just needed somebody to be like, but have you thought about it this way? Yeah. So a completely level, you know, approach. Yeah. and. And I work in management and um, it's an approach I take with some of the people that work with me now. Yeah. I'll ask them questions that allow them to elaborate in any way they feel appropriate. And it's really enlightening to be able to do it. It is. And I think, um, I think therapy is great. And this is kind of what I was saying about what you get taught at school. We tend to come to therapy in crisis, sadly. Yeah. I actually think it should be something that's kind of part of the curriculum. Yeah, yeah, the, Cal <laughs> the Californian approach. You know, really? if you're a rich Californian, you see a therapist regardless of how healthy you are. I really think it's a great idea. Yeah, it's not just fat people that see personal trainers, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, muscular people, really fit people continue to see PTs because they want to continue to yeah. develop. Should be the same with therapists. I think so, and I just think I just think it's an area that we really lack in and we rely wholly on our parents to teach us all of our emotional skills or who made them experts. Yeah. And there's no, no, blame, there's no, <laughs> no. blame there, no. right? They're great people. And yeah. I, as a parent, I'm sure 
every parent does their very best and yeah. they would do like you say you'd lay down to save them in a heartbeat but it doesn't make you an expert no, in these areas um so i just think it's really important and there's no harm can come from having a conversation no harm can come from going to a therapy session and unloading a little yeah, yeah you absolutely. can only feel lighter yeah um so there's in my view there's no harm that can come from it i think Agreed. it's a good thing yeah mm. so thank you for today <laughs> thanks for listening to me <laughs> i love talking about myself but it's fine <laughs> <laughs> um thank you for coming today and um i think this would be good for a lot of people hopefully and you know hopefully they'll they'll pick up that people like you do this kind of thing not because it does anything other than than wants to help and yeah. you know it, it's a privilege to be able to do it so thank yeah. you and before we go run things mm. tell me quickly about that my little uh, side hustle as it were yeah. um so i created run things with a friend of mine who i met through the charity mind and we basically created this um accidental business mm. so we marry together uh, physical and mental health because they're so intrinsically linked. And basically, we put on running-based activities, um, at the moment, mostly virtual events. And we have mm -hmm. a virtual running club as well mm -hmm. that's got like 500 members. Um, and it's about creating a community of people who uh, take part in the events to raise money for charity, to improve their mental health, and, and generally to be a part of a community that they wouldn't otherwise meet. So... We've got people in Dubai in it, Australia, New Zealand, USA, Barbados, lots in the UK, mm. and hopefully it'll continue to grow. Um, so yeah, if people want to check it out, it's yeah. runthings.co.uk. Great, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to introducing you to my guest in my next episode.